Welcome to the Richview Church Podcast. We want to journey with you in your next steps with Jesus. Ready? Let's go. Thank you, Ben. That's, uh, that's perfect for going into today's uh, sermon. Uh, for the next two weeks, Pastor Ed and I decided that we were going to prepare the congregation for the fall and for a new ministry season, kind of just like school. Fall is a great time to get things restarted. So the next two weeks, we're going to be focusing on the mission of the church. And uh, three weeks from now, that's the, uh, the first Sunday after the, parking in the uh, party in the parking lot, which is September 15th, we'll be starting a new series called I Can't Believe It. And this series is going to be about talking about why someone in 2019 can believe in God. There are many people in our society and in our culture who kind of, you know, don't understand. Why are there people who still are out there who believe in God? And they've never been exposed to the arguments, the great arguments that are in favor of why we should believe in God. So that would be a great time to think of a, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, someone who's a skeptic, someone who's wrestling with things of faith. That would be a great Sunday to invite them out. For the next two weeks, we're going to be uh, talking mostly to our members, but if you're not a believer here this morning, I, it's, it's great that you're here because you're going to sh see what the church is all about, what we're up to. We want people to know. We don't want to be kind of a secretive thing. We want people to know what we are up to as a church. So I hope uh, you will enjoy this time with us as well. The sermon this morning is called, Whatever It Takes. Often as a church, we ask this question when we're talking about how we're going to serve the church, how we're going to reach the lost, we ask the question, what can I do? What can I do? You know, I've got a certain skill, I've got a certain ability, uh, I'm pretty good at this, I'm not so good at that. What can I do to serve the church? What can I do to reach the lost? And we even as a church ask the same question. What can we do? Considering the resources we have, considering our location, considering all of these things, what can we do to reach the lost and to build people up in Jesus? Those are great questions. I, I think that's a great question for us to ask. But you know what? I think there's an even better question that we could be asking. Because when we ask, what can I do? The starting point is myself, my abilities. And then I'm going to answer that question in a way that only matches up with how much skill or ability I have. And that's all I have to offer. But God is on our side, church. God is with us. Our whole, the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us as a church. And so there's so much that we can offer, and I want us to get excited about the mission that this church has. So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 15. This is going to help us talk about the mission that the church is up to, and it's going to show us what we need to keep in mind and the right questions we need to be asking in order to do the mission of this church. So what we're going to do is I'm going to basically go through Acts 15. We're going to go through it once, and I'm basically going to teach what's happening and then we're going to double back and we're going to pull out three principles from this story that is going to help us sharpen our mission for ministry here at Richview this fall and this ministry season. Just some uh, background information at Acts, about Acts 15. Uh, first of all, the passage will be up on the screen, but there are also Bibles in the back and there's some great free apps that you can download to follow along as well. The story of Acts 15 happens uh, a few years after the resurrection of Jesus. And at this part, point, the church is quite young. And the church leaders realize that they need to deal with a very serious question. So the church leaders of this very young church that was just established since the resurrection of Jesus, 
they have a very important decision they have to make. So they get together and they talk it out. And as we look into this, uh, this episode of the church and its history, we are going to see how we can sharpen our mission as well. So follow with me, if you would, Acts chapter 15, verse 1. This is what it says. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate, uh, and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So there are these certain people. We're going to find out later that these certain people are called Pharisees. And these certain people were preaching and telling believers that they didn't just need to have faith in Jesus. They also need to fulfill all of the Old Testament law, or what is also called the Mosaic law. And one of the things that you would have to do to fulfill that law was to be circumcised. So they believe that, yes, you need to have faith in Jesus. You need to have faith that he died, was buried, and rose again for the forgiveness of your sins. You need to have that. But also, you need to follow the entire Old Testament law as well. Now, Paul and Barnabas, who are church founders, and they were, uh, they were uh, Paul at least, was taught by Jesus himself, they know that faith uh, that salvation is through faith alone. All we need is faith in Christ. We don't need to follow after the Old Testament law anymore. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He lived it perfectly and died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of sins. So this caused quite a dispute within the church. These Pharisees are saying that they need to fil uh, fulfill the Old Testament law. They need to do all of its statutes. And these other people were saying that you just need faith in Christ alone. So they realized they need wisdom. So they talk to the elders, and then they go off towards Jerusalem where the elders are. And then this happens in verse 3. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And Gentiles, by the way, means non-Jews. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So here we see a little contrast. On the way to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas run into a group of believers in Phoenicia and Samaria. And they tell them all of that all of these Gentiles, all of these non-Jews are coming to genuine faith in Jesus. And they're overjoyed. They're ecstatic. They love the idea that more and more people are coming to know Jesus and are coming to experience salvation. But that's in stark contrast to what's going on when they go to Jerusalem. They share the same story about how the Gentiles are coming to faith, and the response is this. I don't think so. They need to also follow the law of Moses. They need to also follow the Old Testament law in order to be saved. Now, the scripture here is telling us very clearly, we're supposed to have the attitude of the first group of people, not the second. We need to, as a church, get excited about the prospect of people coming to faith in Christ. We need to be excited about the fact that there are a bunch of people around here who need Christ and we want to share it with them. That should characterize us. And when people do come to faith in Jesus, we need to celebrate. That is how we ought to be. That is how our attitude should be towards new people coming to faith. And, you're, and you might be thinking, that's obvious. Like, of, of course, of course when people are saved, we should be celebrating. But sometimes we get an attitude that says something different. I know I've, I've even felt this before, but I've also heard stories of, like this before. 
As people will say, you know, I've been following Jesus my whole life. I've sacrificed. I've followed after him even when it's hurt. I've been giving to the church my whole life. I've, I've been doing all of these things. And then I find out that this person I don't like or this relative I don't like who has been doing all of these awful things their whole life, has never cared about God, has never cared about the work of the church, all of a sudden they become believers and they're suddenly saved? I've heard this attitude before. And even part of me uh, thinks that way. It's like, really? It's that easy? Just come to faith? But that attitude belies a misunderstanding of what salvation is all about. We need to meditate on this truth every day. No one deserves to be saved. No one does. Not you, not me. No one deserves to be saved. The only reason any of us are saved is because of the work Jesus did on the cross. And those who have faith in Christ, those who have faith in him can be saved. That's it. You're not building up a number of works in order to be saved. No. If we follow after Christ and we follow after his word, we're doing so because we know we are saved and we're overjoyed and we want to give our lives to him. So when other people are saved, we say to them, hey, just like you, I have been saved by the grace of God. And we celebrate that. That is the attitude that we ought to have. Now, I want to point out something about these Pharisees. I, I want to ask you a question first, though. Are Pharisees believers... Are, are they saved? Are these people who are teaching that you need to have the Old Testament law plus, the, plus faith in Christ, are they saved? Very good. According to this passage, it seems that they are. The believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said this. And, and here's, here's what I want to draw from this. There are believers that you will meet, and I've met in the past, with some truly wacko beliefs. Seriously, wacko beliefs. Okay, I've been in church. I've been in services where people are talking about astrology. I've been in churches where people are doing fortune telling. I've, I've heard all sorts of wacko beliefs. And when, just some understanding of scripture would show that these things are wrong. and We should have nothing to do with those things. But that's not actually the main point. The main point is, how loosely do we hold to our personal preferences, our personal convictions, and our worldview? And how strongly do we hold to Scripture? That is the dividing line between faith and not faith, belief and unbelief. If we have our preferences and convictions and our worldview, and we are confronted with Scripture that shows that that preference and conviction and worldview is wrong, which one do we grab onto? Do we say, you know what, Scripture's actually not, not right here. Um, scripture's wrong. My preferences and my worldview, that's the right thing. And we, and we cling on to that. Or will we have the humility to know that God in his word is smarter than me, smarter than my culture, smarter than the other person, smarter than us? He's all wise and all powerful. And so when there is a conflict between my personal preferences or the way I view things and scripture, it's scripture every time. That's the dividing line between faith and non-faith, belief and unbelief, whether we do in fact trust Christ in all things not just up until he disagrees with us. Just wanted to draw that out. Okay, so the uh, problem is made evident. Some believe that you need to have the Old Testament law. Some believe that it is just faith in Christ. And so the Apostle Peter chimes in and gives some arguments why the Gentiles need only to be saved through faith in Christ. This is what happens next. My page flipped over. Here we go. Verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. 
After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. So Peter chimes in and, and gives, his, uh, gives his perspective on the situation, and he gives three reasons why the Gentiles need only faith in Christ to be saved. There are some sub-arguments in there, but there's three main arguments. The first one is this. God made a choice. If we read through all of Acts, we would see that God actually gave Peter a vision to go preach the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. God did not tell him to go and preach the Old Testament law to the Gentiles. He did not tell them that they had to go through the sacrificial system. No, he told him to preach to the Gentiles the good news about Jesus and Jesus alone. So that's his first argument. The second argument is this. The Gentiles were receiving the Holy Spirit. And that is a surefire way of knowing whether or not someone is a believer. If you are a believer, if you are a genuine believer, the Holy Spirit, God himself, dwells within you. And he changes your perspective. He changes your character. He makes you new. If you have the Holy Spirit living within you, you are saved. And Peter says, these Gentiles are receiving the Spirit without the works of the law. And so they are saved through that faith. And then finally, he says this, there was fruit that, was, uh, that they were bearing as they were living, out, uh, living for Jesus. This is what it says. Uh, verse 9, he did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So there was evidence. There was evidence in their changed character. There was evidence in their changed outlook that they were coming to genuine faith in Jesus. And so then Peter concludes, based on this evidence, based on all that has happened, based on all that God has said and done, the Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus. And they are coming to real, genuine salvation. And then he says, why would we put the Old Testament law, why would we put the Mosaic law on their shoulders when you and I per know perfectly well, Peter says to the Pharisees, you and I know perfectly well, we can't do the law perfectly. The law is not enough to be saved. We fail at the law again and again. Why would we add to their burden? It is through faith in Christ alone that we are saved. And then after that, James has his say as well. And James says, and this is a great place to go, by the way. James is like, okay, everyone's had their peace. Everyone's said what they need to say. Let's go to scripture. What does God have to say about this? And that's where a good place for you and I to go if we ever want to know what God has to say about an issue. We need to go to scripture. And this is what James says. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, that's another name for Peter, so that's Peter. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this, as it is written. And as it is written is one of those phrases that means we're about to quote the Old Testament scripture. And then he does. And he quotes a piece of scripture where God is speaking. So this is what God says in the Old Testament, verse 16. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. 
that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. So why does James quote this particular passage? What's going on here? What is David's fallen tent? What is being described here? God had said this in the Old Testament about the future, what God was planning on doing in the future. And then he says this. So what's going on here? Well, first it says God will rebuild David's fallen tent. What does that mean? David is uh, King David, king of the Jews at some point in Israel's history. And at some point, the people of Israel and its kings lived disobedient lives. And the result was that God's people were exiled and spread out throughout the entire middle, uh, near, ancient Near East. And so there was a time when the line of Davidic kings was broken. That's the reference to the fallen tent. The line of kings was broken. But God said he would rebuild that tent. He would rebuild. He would bring a new king, but not just a human king, not merely a human king, but an eternal king. And we know that king to be Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the answer to this riddle. How will he rebuild David's fallen tent? It will be through King Jesus. And then it says, it's ruins I will rebuild, says God, and I will restore it. But then we have to ask, why does he do this? For what purpose does he bring Jesus? What is the purpose behind rebuilding David's fallen tent? And it tells us, verse 17, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. So God's plan, James argues from Scripture, and it's clearly here, God's plan was always to include the Gentiles in faith. Even the Gentiles, even those who are outside the family of, uh, of the Jews, even those who were not following the Old Testament law, even they can be saved through this new king. And that's what James argues here. And I just want to point out something here. James's excellent use of Scripture is, the is one of the reasons why today, even today, a Gentile like me can be accepted into the church. We have much to be thankful for here in Acts 15 as the true faith was preserved by God through the people like James, Barnabas, Paul, and Peter. So then finally they conclude. Verse 19, it says this. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So they conclude, we are not going to make the Gentiles or ask the Gentiles to live out the Old Testament law. But then they give these four prohibitions. Why these four prohibitions? We are going to get to that. Okay, I know that was, may have been long-winded, but we got through the passage. Now we understand what's going on. And now we're going to double back and we're going to pull out three principles from this story. And the first one is this, church. We need to know this. Know the mission. We need to know the mission. We need to know why we gather here. We need to know what we're doing here as a church. Why has God established the church? Why has he called us to gather together? What work has he got for us to do? That's the question we need to have an answer to. And in fact, we read it in this passage. Let's go back. In, in verse 16, it says this, After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, 
its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. For what purpose will, will he rebuild the tent? And by the way, that rebuilt tent is the church led by King Jesus. For what purpose does he do this? In verse 17, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. That's the point. That's why we're here, to spread the love of Jesus, to let the world know what Christ has done for us, to spread his fame and to spread the glory of God throughout the world. And in our context, in Etobicoke, that's what we're here for. That's the mission. And everything that we do as a church, all of the programs we do, all of the services that we do, all of the interactions that we have need to ultimately serve that purpose. I wonder how many of us know the mission statement of this church. I'm going to remind you of it. It's this. We are here joyfully leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus. That's the mission. That's the goal. And we need to throw everything at this mission. Everything else is a sub-mission. Here's an example. I, I, recently I watched a movie. It was about Winston Churchill. And during World War II, he had a mission. He had one central mission, to win the war. That was it. He needed to defeat the Germans. That was the critical mission. And everything needed to serve that mission. There was a time during the war where the German forces were sweeping across France and they were pinning the, the English army at the beach of Dunkirk. And there was nowhere for them to go. They needed time to evacuate Dunkirk across the English Channel. Now, if that German army would have reached them, the war would have been effectively over. The English forces destroyed, and nothing left to do but surrender. But Winston Churchill knew the mission, and he was going to do everything he could to make sure that this mission succeeded. So this is what he did, as difficult as this is. There was an English army that was nearby, a smaller force, and he used this army to attract the attention of the Germans and to bring them further away from Dunkirk, knowing full well that the army, the German army, will destroy this diversion, knowing full well. Now, that's a difficult choice, but imagine the alternative. Imagine if he decided for one second that, you know what, winning the war isn't the main mission. The main mission is conserving as many lives as possible. But you know what happens if he tries to do that? He fails at both missions, right? Because the, the, uh, the German army comes through and destroys the army as he is trying to conserve the troops, and they lose the, that force, and they lose the war as well. It was a difficult choice, but he had to make it. And we need to think the same way about our mission as a church. We need to throw everything at this mission, joyfully leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus. There are some important sub-goals, but insofar as they support that main goal, we do them. But if they do not, then we have to evaluate those things and do better to focus on the main mission of this church, to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. Do you know the mission? Do you know it? Do you know that's why we're here ultimately? Yes, we, we do a lot of other things here. We do a lot of sub-goals, but those all are pointing to the main goals, to lead more and more people in a growing relationship with Jesus. That's the first thing we need to know. We need to know the mission. Second thing, we need not, we must not confuse the mission with tradition. We must not confuse the mission with tradition. And another way of putting this, I was thinking of putting it this way, but here's another way. We can't confuse the mission with the method. We can't confuse the mission with the method. That's ultimately the problem that the Pharisees were having 
during uh, the Acts 15 Council of Jerusalem. Take a look again at verse 1. It says this, they were saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. See, their problem was they couldn't distinguish between the mission, which was bringing people to know Jesus, and the tradition of the Old Testament law. And by the way, no wonder, no wonder. That's how the Jews and that's how God's people were following after God for generations. No wonder they got confused at this point. Uh, yes, of course. But their inability, the inability of these Pharisees to distinguish between the two caused them to conflate the two. And now they are forcing in an obstacle to faith, which is the Mosaic Old Testament law, and causing people to be turned away from faith. Meanwhile, Peter's saying this, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. You see, Peter was able to distinguish between the two. He was able to tell which one is just tradition, which one was the method, which, which ones were just our practices and the main mission. And since he was able to distinguish between those two things, that gave him enough lateral movement to call out the Old Testament Mosaic law and say, this is actually a barrier to faith. And so he was able to evaluate and say, look, this, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, those traditions associated with that is pushing people away from true faith. So we're not going to add that as a yoke to the Gentiles. All that is to say this, we need to be evaluating all the time what we are doing as a church that contributes to the mission and pushes it away. We need to be able to distinguish between what we're doing that's just traditional, what we're doing that we are just going through the motions, what we are doing that we're just used to and that's how we've always done it. And we need to evaluate whether or not those things in fact do follow after the mission and contribute towards the mission. And if they don't, then maybe we need to make some changes. Seems to be the case. There are things that we need to do as a church, including our church uh, culture, how we act as a church, some of the things that we do, uh, some, some of the programs that we do, we need to evaluate and we need to make sure that they're drawing people to Jesus and not forcing people away. This brings me to uh, that end, the end of the passage where there were those four prohibitions. Let's put those up on the screen. Remember those four prohibitions? They said, write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So again, the question is, why these four things? And of these four things, only one of them is non-negotiable. Can you pick the one? It's the abstaining from sexual immorality. That one's non-negotiable. That's just the great reminder to the Gentiles that following after Christ means following after his word and to abstain from sexual immorality. But the other three things are completely negotiable. They're talking about dietary laws. And Jesus taught that it is not what goes in the mouth that defiles, but what comes from the heart that defiles. So why include these three things? And the answer is the very next verse. Take a look at what it says. Verse 21. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. The reason why they include these three other things is so that the maximum number of both Gentiles and Jews will come to faith. See what's going on there? If the Jews are going to be part of the same church as the Gentiles, then they're going to be eating with each other, associating with each other. They're going to be having communion with one another. And if the Gentiles are coming and eating the meat of strangled animals and blood and all of these things that the Jews find repulsive because of the way that they've been brought up, 
it is going to turn the Jews away from faith. See what's going on here? They're using the traditions of the Old Testament law to draw in as many people as possible. That's what's happening. That, and d- d- distinguishing between the main mission and traditions is giving them the ability to be able to do that. Traditions are not bad. Traditions are not bad insofar as they are serving the main mission. Traditions are bad if they are pushing people away, but they're not bad when it means drawing more people to know Jesus. I want the reason why people leave Richview to be this. I don't want anyone to leave Richview, but if someone does decide to leave, I hope you follow me, if someone does decide to leave, I hope they leave because of this reason. They were confronted with the living Jesus from his word, and they said no. That's the reason. I don't want people to leave Richview because we're not friendly. I don't want people to leave Richview because they wanted to sit somewhere and someone said, that's my seat. I don't want people to leave Richview because they were driving by looking for our church and they couldn't find it. I don't want people leaving Richview because they tried to call in and the phone wasn't working properly. Or they went to the website and the website's not organized properly. Or they came to one of our programs and it wasn't organized properly. You you see what I'm getting at? We need to be doing as much as we can to make sure that the way that we do things, the traditions that we're stuck in perhaps, aren't forbidding people from coming to know Jesus. So we need to evaluate again and again. And I've got to ask you, church, are we, are we a friendly church? Are you a friendly person at church? I mean, I want you to be friendly all the time. But are you someone who looks at someone who's alone and says, I'm going to meet that person. I'm going to shake their hand. I'm going to say hi. Because every second someone is here, every second they're here alone, is another second where they get to be convinced that coming to church was a stupid idea. That these people don't care. That I'm just here and it's awkward and I'm going to leave. When someone's alone, I was going to share this at the First Impressions rally, but I'm just going to share it to you all now. I'll share it again then. When people are alone, that should be an emergency in this church. There needs to be a red button on a wall somewhere that you smack and the alarms go off so that someone goes in and meets that new person. And if you are a new person here and that's been your experience or you have experienced this in the past here, I, I do apologize. We're, we're going to get better, right, church? We're going we're gonna to do better. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. So whatever... <laughs> So whatever we're doing as a church, let's make sure that it's contributing to the mission. And here's the final thing that I want to draw from this passage. This is the final thing. Act on mission. The next verse that we're going to read is, I think, one of the most important verses when it, where it comes to church and its mission. I, I think that this, if this verse takes hold of this church's heart, if this verse takes hold of our ministries, I think if this verse gets, infects this place, it'll do tremendous things for us as a church. And this is what it says. Verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, we should not make it any more difficult than it needs to be for new people to come to know Jesus. Whatever we can do to make it, I mean, it's difficult enough changing your entire worldview, changing what you've believed in the past and coming to know Jesus. It's difficult enough as is. And we do not want to be ones who contribute to that burden. So let's, as a church, we can, we can do better. We can. Elders, we can do better. Deacons, we can do better. Ministry leaders, we can do better. Ministry volunteers, we can do better. Members, attendants, all of us, I want to encourage you. 
There's so much potential in this church and so much potential in you because God's spirit is in you. We can do so much as a church if we let God's word infect our hearts, if we let the joy of knowing Jesus change who we are, and may our hearts and our lives overflow with the grace of Jesus so that other people can come to know him. That's what I'm hoping that we are as a church, a church that supremely desires to do the mission, to lead more and more people in a growing, growing relationship with Jesus. There are many ways that you can be involved, and I I could spend a lot of time uh, listing many of them, but many of them are in your bulletin. There are sign-ups at the Info Center. There are some Alpha handouts, and if you want to know more about Alpha, please talk to me about it. There are so many ways that you can get involved in the mission. And you know what's exciting about doing mission? When you're looking around and seeing other people in church doing the same thing, it just gets you excited. It just gets you ready to go. It just gets you geared up. I'm just excited when I see other people passionate about doing the ministry of the church. So let me encourage you. Let me challenge you. How are you contributing to the mission? See, here's the question again that we always ask. What can I do? What can I do? What are my skills? What are my abilities? What can I do? How can I contribute? But that puts the bar here up to the level of our abilities. That's how much we think that we can contribute to the church. But you know what? There's a better question. Here it is. What will it take? What will it take? That takes my personal limitations out of the equation. And it asks God, what will it take for more people to know about Jesus in this community? As a church, we need to ask this. And as individuals, we need to ask this. What will it take? And whatever it will take to do the mission of the church here in Etobicoke, God will supply. He will supply to this church, and he will supply to you individually. Church, Let's throw ourselves wholeheartedly at the mission of Jesus, joyfully leading people, all people, into a growing relationship with him. Are you with me? All right. I'm going to ask the band if they'd come up, and I'm going to pray for us as we undertake this incredible, glorious mission that Jesus has put before us. Let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we cannot do this on our own. We cannot do this by our own strength. We cannot do this by our own will. So we ask you earnestly, would you give us your Holy Spirit to empower us, to strengthen us, to encourage us, and to push us on towards the goal? Oh, Lord, would Richview be a place where anyone can come and grow in their relationship with Jesus? Not just us, but our entire neighborhood, our communities, even those in the world. Lord, help us to do that. Would you strengthen us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were encouraged and challenged in today's podcast. Check us out at richviewchurch.com, Facebook, or Twitter at Richview Toronto. But you know what? We're not an online church, so we hope that you'll come visit our church in person. We'd love to get to know you.